Amen. You all sound great. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We're going to Luke chapter number one, and we are going to read from a very familiar portion of scripture about none other than the Christmas story. Luke chapter number one, beginning in verse 26, it says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end then Mary said to the angel how can this be since I don't know a man and the angel answered and said to her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you therefore the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God now indeed Elizabeth your relative has also conceived the son in her old age and this is now the sixth month of her who is called or who was called barren for with God God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Then over in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee and out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that when they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The Christmas story. We've all heard it before in so many different ways and so many different times. We've heard about the angel and his majestic appearance to Mary. We heard about the virgin conception. We heard about how the angel had to go and speak to Joseph and tell him it was okay for him to take Mary to be his wife because that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. We heard and we read about the Roman census and how everybody had to go to their hometown and they left Nazareth and went to Bethlehem when Mary was great with child, a.k.a. she was ready to pop. I mean, this wasn't in the early stages of pregnancy. She was ready to go. We've heard about there being no room in the inn, and so Jesus had to be born in a stable. We heard about the manger and the swaddling clothes and the shepherds in the field. We heard about his dedication. We've read about how he was confirmed to be the Messiah by two prophetesses. We learned that we read about Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, who was also great with child. We heard about the wise men and how they visited Jesus, not while he 
was in Bethlehem, but when he was back home in his house in Nazareth, we heard about the gifts that they brought him, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. We heard about their trip to uh, Egypt because Herod was about ready to kill the kids. And then we heard that it was okay for them to go back home to Nazareth. We've heard the Christmas story before. But in this series, I want to talk to you about the Christmas story like you may have never heard it before. You've heard all of those details, but do you really understand what was taking place there? Or has tradition led us to believe some things that simply are not true? Let's go ahead and look at the Christmas story like you've never heard it before. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister to every heart? every person. Would you give us revelation and understanding of the greatest miracle that has ever taken place, the birth of Christ. We give you all the praise and everybody said, amen. Amen. We've all heard these things many, many, many times before. And a lot of what we've heard has been tradition. A lot of what we picked up has been because of artwork through the years and paintings and pictures. And by the way, when paintings uh, first came out around the time that they would have painted and uh, put out there for the world to see depictions of the birth of Christ, what artists and master artists would do is they would try to put everything on one canvas. And so because they tried to put everything on one canvas, oftentimes what they did is they mixed parts of the Christmas story all so that it looks like they all took place in the exact same place. And so, for instance, that's why you see the wise men at the manger. When the Bible, we're going to look at this in future weeks, the wise men didn't visit Jesus at the manger. They visited him when he was back home at his house in Nazareth when he was about two years old, not when he was just born. But because of tradition and things that have been passed down through the times, we all often have misconceptions about the Christmas story that rob us of all of the greatness of what it truly means. And so I want to share with you some lessons from the Christmas story that you may have never heard before. Lesson number one, never forget what God has done. As we come to our text in Luke, we have to ask ourselves the question, how can we be sure that The miraculous, amazing, absolutely stupendous, mind-blowing events that surrounded the Christmas story actually happened the way that Luke recorded them. How did Luke know all of these specific details? I know that the Holy Spirit revealed them to him, but, but how can we be sure that he got everything exactly right? How do we know what the, that he knew that the angel said this to Mary and this is how Mary felt and how Mary responded? How do we know about all of the details that he gives about the Holy Family leaving Nazareth and going to Bethlehem and then coming back to Nazareth and then going to Egypt as we read in Matthew's gospel and, and then all of that kind of stuff about the wise men and Herod. How do we know that these were all really, really true? Well, Luke tells us how he found these things out. Luke chapter 2, verse number 19, he says, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I want you to notice two important words in this particular verse, kept and pondered. The word kept literally means um, thought more than just thought about them and kept them to herself. It means to keep within in order to closely guard to so that they can accurately or carefully preserve what has happened. And the word ponder means to lay in order, like one who carefully and meticulously chronicles a story. And so we find out that Mary was doing more than just thinking on these things. She was keeping in our heart a highly organized 
an exactly detailed uh, uh, kind of description of the events that took place. Now, if that seems peculiar to you, you just need to be married. And you will realize that women have this great ability to remember things exactly the way they took place down to the very last detail. They remember where everybody was sitting. They remember the clothes that they were wearing. They remember the cologne that somebody had. They remember everything. And so when men are telling a story, that's why we get all of those nice little additions in the story as we are interrupted, as we are telling the story. No, 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 you forgot about this and you forgot about about that and you forgot. It's not because women are trying to be rude in any way. It's because they remember meticulously. And this was Mary. Mary remembered meticulously. She remembered the exact details of this other world miracle and she chronicled them all, chronicled them all in our heart and preserved her memories. And these weren't insignificant events. They were miraculous events that altered her life and the life of her family. And she eventually shared every detail of this with Luke and Matthew and the other writers of the Gospels. And people want to know, well, when did she share these things? Well, probably when she lived in the house of the Apostle John. You remember at his, at his death, Jesus handed his mother off to the Apostle John and Mary moved in with the Apostle John. And so many of the disciples and the apostles would visit together and they would talk to Mary and that's when Mary, most scholars believe, gave them all of the details that allowed them to write the specifics of every event down to the last little detail of what happened. I could just imagine being there as Mary was telling them about all of these things and how it impacted them. And I think, how were they able to write? When I just think about the miraculous events that took place on Christmas, it's awe-inspiring in every way. And so there's Mary, and she's saying, and the angel just suddenly and out of nowhere appeared to me, and it was just, I was, what, what, what? An angel appeared to you? What did he say? What did he say? Well, he told me that I was highly favored, and then what? He told me I was going to give birth to the Messiah of the world, and I asked him, how is this thing going to be? And he told me that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon me, and I, I really couldn't comprehend it, but, but I was raised to believe that whatever God says we should embrace. And so I said, be it on to me according to your will. And then what? Well, and then this and then that. And then the other thing and the wise men and the shepherds and, and the manger and, and all of the, it was absolutely amazing. Mary was telling them every little meticulous detail. And the reason why we know is because Mary never forgot. And that's the first lesson from Christmas as you may have never heard it, never ever forget what God has done for you. Never forget so that when it gets hard and when the enemy challenges your faith, you can say, yeah, but but I remember when. I remember when God healed my body. I remember when God touched my mind. I remember when he visited me in my loneliness. I remember when he showed up in my darkest hour. I remember when he provided. I remember when he blessed me with my spouse or my kids or my job or my breakthrough. I remember when he delivered me from that addiction and that old life and my sin. Never forget what God has done for you so that when you're having a 
bad day, when you're having a bout with doubt or a moment of weakness, you can say, you know what? God did this for me. Never forget because there are going to be times when you encourage other people, other people who are having a bad day. And you could say, let me just tell you what Jesus did for me so that you can be encouraged. In Revelation 12 and 11, we're told they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. It says they overcame him. Who's him? Him is the devil. Him is the enemy of our soul who tries to steal our faith. But when you remember what God has done, your faith cannot be undone because it's too late. You've already tasted his goodness. So you're trusting in his promise and you've decided you're going to wait on him. Remember what the Lord has done. So the next time you face a giant like David, you can say, the same God that delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Remember the good things. We, we know, because Mary never forgot. The other day we were, we were in our kitchen and just out of nowhere, my wife, and we were just, just looking at the blessings of God and how God has blessed us and how we're able to be so generous in, in, at this stage in our lives. And my wife looked at me and she said, I remember when we stood in the kitchen in, my, in our other house when you first started out in ministry and you looked at me and you told me, I don't know if we'll ever be as blessed as what we gave up because we're serving the Lord and we don't know how that's going to turn out. And we gave up so much and then she looked and she said, but, but here we are today. See, never forget what God has done for you. Take a moment during this Christmas season as you think about all of the details of the Christmas story that we know because Mary never forgot. And let that be a reminder to you of the goodness of God in your life. Don't you dare forget what God has done, both big and small, both both great and insignificant. Like the old song says, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your very blessings, and see what God has done. Lesson number two from the Christmas story. God always knows what he's doing. Look again with me. Luke chapter two, verse number one. Came to pass in those days that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was great with child, ready to pop. So it was. That while they were there, the days were complete for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Watch this, because there was no room for him in the inn. Have you heard that portion of the story? Here's how you've heard it. Well, you know, poor Mary and Joseph, they just didn't have anything. And poor Mary and Joseph, because they were so poor. They couldn't afford to pay for a room in an inn. And so the best that they could do was go to a stable. That's the message that we've been told, but that's not at all what the scripture teaches. First of all, they had to be born in Bethlehem. This is what the scriptures and prophecies, or Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. This is what the scriptures and prophecies said about the Messiah, but they lived in Nazareth. By the way, Bethlehem means house of bread. 
Isn't it amazing that the one who said, I am the living bread, was born in a place that means house of bread? God knows what he's doing. How would this prophecy be fulfilled? Think of the brain trust of heaven. He's living in Nazareth, but he's got to go all the way to Bethlehem. And so I can see the wheels turning in our heavenly father, although he probably didn't think about it because he probably had already thought about, about it. And he said, okay, let's enact the next part of the plan. We've got to send the whole world in motion. We've got to have a governor, somebody who doesn't even serve me. We've got to have them issue a census at this precise moment so that Jesus could go to Bethlehem because that's where he needs to be born. God knows what he's doing. And so everyone gets on the move. God literally puts the whole world on the move just so the plan, his plan for the life of the Holy Family and his plan for mankind could come to pass and Jesus could fulfill prophecy. This was inconvenient for Mary because she wasn't just barely pregnant, she was ready to pop. She was great with child. And you can imagine the inconvenience that this was to her. By the way, be prepared if you are serious about fulfilling the will of God for your life to be inconvenienced. And this is one of the reasons why so many people never do experience. They just get a little taste, a tiny little drop. They get an appetizer of the goodness of God. But they never get to experience the fullness of the goodness of God because we, especially in America, we don't like to be inconvenienced for Jesus. There's nothing about the call of God that will ever be convenient for any of us. Could God have kind of sent them on their way, you know? Maybe when Mary was in her first trimester... Sure, but he had to be born there. So at the most inconvenient time, he says, you got to go. And they got to go 90 miles from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, which was normally about a four-day journey, give or take just a few hours one way or the other, because most people, non-pregnant people, would be able to walk in those days 20 miles in a day. But not Mary. Mary was great with child, the scripture says. In other words, she had to take a lot of bio breaks along the way. She had to stop, honey, I I, got to go again. And honey, I'm too tired to go anymore. Can we just stop? And so can you imagine them setting up camp and breaking down camp and setting up camp and breaking down camp and setting up camp and breaking down camp and pulling over here and we got to go to the bathroom over here and we got to go to the bathroom over there and going slower than everybody else. And so by the time they got there, most scholars believe it took them 10 days but everybody was on the move. The whole world was on the move. And Bethlehem, which was normally not a very big city, is suddenly packed with all of these people who arrived six days earlier. So it wasn't that they couldn't get in the inn because they didn't have money. It wasn't that they couldn't get in the inn because, you know, Joseph didn't make reservations as typical men would do. It was that they arrived 10 days or six days late. Took them a total of 10 days. When they got there, Every room in Bethlehem was filled. And by the way, inns in Bible times were not like they are today. It wasn't like the Marriott. An inn in the in Bible times was was a second floor above the homes of most people. And so it's like an extra bed that people can stay in. And so they weren't they they weren't plentiful. They were limited. And what was plentiful in and around Bethlehem were all of these caves that we call a stable. 
These caves were all plentiful. And it was very common for traveler buys, not just Mary and Joseph, who were broken poor as, 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 as tradition has told us, but not really true, would stay in when they, when they couldn't find a place in the town, when all the inns were taken. They would stay in these caves. It was a place for shelter. And so what happens is there's a door that is shut. Would they have preferred to stay in the house? Yes. Would that have been more convenient since she was great with child? Yes. But that door shuts. But how many of you know when a door shuts, God knows what he's doing. And the door that opens up for them is this thing that we call a stable or a cave. Now what we need to understand, Christmas like we've never heard it before, is this wasn't a barn. It wasn't a wood structure. It was a cave. It was hewn out of stone. And this was a place that shepherds would often take their lambs and their animals to shelter them from the bad weather so they could have a dry night in that particular cave. And these caves, like I said, were all over Bethlehem. Matter of fact, early historians, and one of the ways that you know that what the scripture says is absolutely reliable is the writings of extra scriptural um, histor- historical books by some of the most well-respected respected historians of their day. Justin Martyr was one of them. Justin Martyr lived about 30 miles from Bethlehem. And he wrote about the birth of Jesus in 150 AD. And so he was probably alive at the fringe end of when Jesus was uh, walking the earth. Uh, maybe, maybe not exactly, but it was recent history to him. And here's what he said. He said that Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem. And then you read some of the great theologians like Origen who was the theologian of theologians. He was considered to be the great rabbi of his time. And he wrote this in 248 AD. He said, there is shown at Bethlehem the cave where Christ was born and the manger in the cave where he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And this site is greatly talked of in surrounding places. And so what he's basically telling us is that this is historically reliable because it's close to the events. It was greatly talked about. This was something that everybody knew that Christ was indeed born, not in a stable made of wood, but in a cave hewn out of stone. Now you say, Pastor, why are all these details important? Well, they're important because they all testify to who Jesus was. First of all, the one who claims to be the bread of life is born in a city called the house of bread. Secondly, he's laid in a manger, and the manger, by the way, was made out of stone as well. The manger wasn't wood like we see in the pictures or art or anything like that. Matter of fact, in the caves, what shepherds did was they they notched out a place in the rock so that it could serve as an animal's feeding trough. And that's exactly where Jesus was laid. And the reason why this is important is because in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the stone and the chief cornerstone. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Have you read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And then you might remember, when Moses wanted to see God face to face, what did God do to Moses? In Exodus, we're told, he said, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over your face so that when I walk by, you can see my back parts. In other words, the only way that you're able to get a glimpse of me 
is if I hide you in a hewn out portion of a cave. Well, how many of you know the first time that any human being got to lay eyes on God face to face, God was laid in a manger, a hewn out portion of a cave. And not only that, but he was born in a place that shepherds would take their sheep. Where else should a lamb be born? John says, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, said of Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And those swaddling clothes were told that they were dirty rags. You know what they actually were? Shepherds would actually leave the rags that they needed or the wrappings that they needed for baby lambs when they were born in these caves so that when the baby lambs were born, they would take them in there and they would wrap them up to keep them warm. And so Jesus is wrapped in the same things that baby lambs are wrapped in. What is God trying to tell us? The whole story is a testimony that Jesus truly is the savior of humankind that has come into the world to save us and deliver us from our sin. When one door closes, how many of you know God knows what he's doing and the door that you need to fulfill your destiny will open. We need to have confidence that God always knows what he's doing. And so many times in life, we get disappointed by closed doors, don't we? In Revelation chapter 3, verse number 7, it says, This says he who is holy, he who is true, he who holds the key of David, he who opens and no man can shut, and shuts and no man can open. We get so excited about open doors, don't we? Oh, this opportunity opened for me. And I mean, the, the, the star, the moon, and, and the sun, they all aligned. And, and life was perfect. And, and this big break came my way. We get excited about open doors. And thank God for open doors. But how many ever get excited about shut doors? How many get excited when it doesn't work out the way that you thought it should? And, and you know, Pastor, well, I was believing for that promotion. It didn't happen. Uh, the loan that I, that I needed didn't go through. It got denied. The relationship didn't work out. They left me. So often we get discouraged and we feel like God has let us down. But I want you to know that when one door closes, God knows what he's doing. The door that God will shut and the other one that God will open is the door that you need to walk through in order for you to fulfill your destiny and the part of your life that has to do with his plan for your life. I read a story about a lady, uh, she was complaining to God because everything went wrong in her day. You know, God didn't, God didn't serve her well enough that particular day. Isn't that us? We complain to God because God didn't do everything that, that we think he should do. God, God wasn't a good servant to us that day. She was complaining and she said, God, why did you let so many bad things happen to me? My alarm clock didn't go off. I was late for work. Must have happened to some of you this morning. No, just playing. At lunch, they made my sandwich wrong. I had to send it back. Driving home, my cell phone dropped the call right in the middle of the conversation. And to top it all off, God, when I got home, I wanted to put my feet in the foot massager just to relax, but it wouldn't turn on. God, nothing went right today. And God said, all right, let me go down the list. Your alarm didn't turn off because there was a drunk driver on the freeway. I delayed you on purpose so you wouldn't be harmed. And your sandwich, you had to send back... Because the first person had a cold and I didn't want you to get sick, so I had somebody else remake it for you. The phone call that dropped driving home in the middle of the conversation, I caused it to drop on purpose because that person was about to spread 
poison and gossip into your ears and I didn't want you to hear that kind of trash. I didn't want it to contaminate you. And the foot massager, by the way, if it would have turned on, it had a shortening and you would have been electrocuted to death. And so the whole reason why all those things that you thought were bad things happened is because I had your good in mind. How many of you know God knows exactly what he is doing in our lives? When one door shuts and another one opens, we need to remember God's in charge If we are submitted to God's will, God sees the end from the beginning. He works all things together for our good, even the things that we don't understand, even the things that don't make sense on this side of eternity. God sees the beginning from the end. He's looking out for us. Let's keep a good attitude when one door shuts, expecting God to open the right door. You may want the in, but God may have a wonderful stable just for you. Lesson number three in the final lesson. It all starts with somebody who says yes to God. There are some religious traditions that teach that the Holy Family was just three. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, right? That's what we've heard all through the years about the Christmas story. And the story is commonly told this way. Mary was not a virgin only when she conceived, but she remained a virgin the rest of her life. And if that were really true, we all really feel exceptionally bad for Joseph, who is a true saint, having been married his whole life to a virgin. That was a joke there. Some of you didn't get it. But look at what the text says. Verse number seven of our text says, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Firstborn. I know what firstborn means to you, but what firstborn means to everybody who knows what firstborn means, it means one of many to come afterwards. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And matter of fact, when we read later on in scripture in Matthew chapter number 13, beginning in verse 44, it talks about the holy family, the extended holy family. Here's what it says. It says, when he had come to his own country, this is Jesus, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Notice, by the way, the definite article on the word carpenter. The carpenter's son, not a carpenter's son, and that's going to become important in future weeks. Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, his brothers, his, his, his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. And so it's very clear from scriptures that Mary, although she was a virgin at conception with Jesus, did not remain a virgin and that Jesus was the eldest of at least six other siblings, four brothers, and history and other documents tell us at least two sisters. Imagine growing up in that home. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Just follow what Jesus is doing. Now everybody, why are you acting up? WWJD, what would Jesus do right now? Imagine, there was serious sibling rivalry in that home, for real. I'm not just saying that. If you read the rest of the scriptures, you read that his family, his brothers, did not believe he was the Messiah. Not until after the resurrection. John chapter 5, verse, John chapter 7, verse number 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Matter of fact, Jesus' siblings were much like Joseph's siblings in the Old Testament. Remember that story? They were the ones who threw him into the pit. They were the ones who sold him into slavery. And the reason is they didn't believe that God could favor him for their benefit. 
This was Jesus' brothers and sisters. They couldn't see why God would favor him when they didn't realize that God was favoring him so that he could save them. And one brother in particular who didn't believe in him was James. But after the resurrection came, James eventually put his faith in Jesus as the Savior. He became the pastor of the biggest church in Jerusalem and even wrote the book of James known to us in the New Testament. His other sibling, Jude, wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament. Early writings tell us that the entire Holy Family, sisters including, were all involved in ministry. And so what we find out is that the whole family, the entire Holy Family, was called into ministry. So we have the Virgin Mary. The Messiah, the guarding of them, Joseph, two writers of the books of the New Testament, and siblings in ministry, not to mention John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Mary's cousin was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was married to a man by the name of Zachariah. And guess what happened to Elizabeth? She had a miraculous birth also. In her old age, she was pregnant as well. And this was really significant to Mary. You remember, it's one of the details that Mary tells Luke about. Luke chapter 2, look at it with me, verse 39. And now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. She just got this angelic announcement, and what does she do? She runs into the hill country with haste. What's she doing? She's going to a girlfriend's house. See, women have never changed. They've been the same forever and ever and ever and ever. So she gets this news. She gets what's going on. And she's got to find somebody that she's going to tell. So she runs with haste to the city of Judah. And she enters into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and she said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is it? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb. Blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. This is amazing because think about this. Mary is going through something which is almost inconceivable. I'm pregnant. I know I've never known a man. How can this thing be? I know what the angel told me, but how many of you know sometimes when you know that you know that you know God told you, there's still a struggle going on in your head. And she's got the struggle going on in her head. And so she runs over to our girlfriend, who happens to be our cousin, and she says, you're never going to believe what's going on. And she sees her, and suddenly Mary realizes God has given my BFF a miraculous pregnancy also. She was called barren, but yet she's pregnant at the same time. And not only is she pregnant at the same time, but when Mary walks into the room, the babe, John the Baptist, that is on the inside of Elizabeth, leaps for joy. And people often ask, why did John leap at such a young age? And you may have heard me read this before, but one of my good friends, Frank Shelton, writes in a book, he says this, in every courtroom across America, each day before a case is tried, regardless if one is the plaintiff or defendant, an attorney wearing a $1,000 suit, a member of the jury, or a janitor, you'll always hear the same two words before the trial starts, all rise. By the way, that didn't invent with Aaron Judge. 
right? By the way, he's not staying with the Yankees. He's going somewhere else. Anyway, out of respect, everyone, and I mean everyone, stands up for the one that's wearing the robe. He goes on to say, I submit to you that the reason why John jumped and stood up when Mary entered the room was because John, even as a baby, even as an infant, in his mother's womb, knew who had entered the room. You see, in Mary's womb was not just the judge of a courtroom, but the judge of heaven and earth who wears a robe of righteousness. In other words... Here's what happened. Mary was encouraged by Elizabeth. I know I'm past the point, but can I remind you, God always knows what he's doing. God will bring the right people to you at the right time to encourage you in your destiny. I remember years ago, by the way, one of my mentors who wrote a great book on Christmas that I I gleaned from as I'm teaching this series um, and lest you think I'm really that brilliant, I got a lot of this information from him. In any case, I remember at one of those inconvenient times in ministry for me. I was going to quit. So many times in, in ministry along the way I wanted to quit because it was hard, because it was inconvenient, because there was struggle that went along, because there was sacrifice along the way, all of those kind of things. And I remember calling him up and I said to him, I want to quit. And he just, he was like the, he is like the apostle Paul to me the greatest Bible teacher in all the world. And he said to me, you cannot quit. God is going to use you to do great things. And because of his encouragement, I stayed the course. God will always send you the right people at the right time. But here's what I really want you to see. Matter of fact, when you continue to study about the Holy Family, we also know that Jesus had grandparents, I know that's hard to conceive because we never think of Jesus as actually having grandparents, but indeed he did. Matter of fact, Joseph's father's name was Jacob. We read about that in Matthew. And his grandfather on Mary's side was named Jehoiakim. And Joseph and Jehoiakim were the grandfathers of Jesus. Some of the early ancient documents even say that Mary's original family was from Jerusalem. And so that Mary's grandparents, they actually believed, which would have been Jesus' great-grandparents, lived right near the north side of the temple, right near what we know as the Pool of Bethesda. And so it could be, the Bible never says, that as Jesus was on his way to visit his great-grandparents, that's when he healed the man at the Pool of Bethesda who was lame for 38 years. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that this entire family was a family that followed the Lord. This entire family was a family that was used by God. And you know why? Because one person said yes to Jesus. And you know what? That's your promise. Listen to what Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. All it takes is one person to bring the gospel message of Jesus Christ to all of their family, to all of their friends. That's why we got saved. And this reminds me of my my Uncle John who just passed away. My Uncle John passed away about maybe six months ago or so. He was the one in our family who first gave his life to the Lord. And he came home and he told us, he said, listen, he said, you all need to be born again. We said, what's born again? He told us what it meant to explain the whole thing to us. And for those of you who may not know what that is, it means when you confess your sins, when you ask God to forgive you of your sins, when you die to your sins, 
And then you're raised to newness of life, like getting a new life all over again because you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior after you repent of your sins. You get a new lease on life. You become born again. And he told us this. And so my mother got saved. Then my father got saved. Then me and my sisters got saved. And it started a trickle effect. And Uncle Junior never experienced in this life the things that he had wished to experience. But he doesn't know, maybe he knows now, that he started a chain reaction. The chain reaction was because of his yes to Jesus, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Because I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Thousands more have given their life to Jesus Christ. Because I gave my life to Jesus Christ. My kids are walking in ministry and serving the Lord. And how many know how many more thousands are going to come to Jesus Christ? Maybe hundreds of thousands. And it all was because one person said yes to Jesus. That's the Christmas story. The Christmas story is all about will you see yes to Jesus? Will you give your life to Jesus Christ? Jesus came not just to give us a holiday that we can celebrate, not just as a baby so that we can look at him and go ooh and ah, but he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. His birth is a testament to who he was. Behold the Lamb of God so that he could die on a cross, so that he could pay the price for your sin and mine, so that we could be made right with God. That's the Christmas story. Would you stand to your feet? You don't want to miss any one of these weeks. We're going to look at the life of Joseph. Was Joseph poor? Did the Holy Family struggle to get by? Did Jesus never have a house and kind of always sleeping in tents? Maybe sleeping on the side of the road and picking out of garbage cans? Was that Jesus? Was that his family? What did the, the life of the holy family look like? And what does that speak to us? But the Christmas story is what I just said. It's all about the opportunity for the world to be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but receive and have eternal life. There's no greater time, I believe, to surrender your life to Jesus than at Christmas time. Because it is basically saying, God, we receive your Christmas gift. With all of the things that go on at Christmas time, I believe the greatest gift that we can experience is when we see people give their life to Jesus. Would you join me in prayer for a moment? If you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you don't know where you stand with him and where you'd spend eternity if you left earth today, if you're watching at one of our locations, if you're watching on television, if you're watching online and you don't know if you're right with God, this Christmas season, God sent a savior to you. His name is Jesus. It means deliverer. It means salvation. One that will save us from the penalty of our sins. And if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, You've never repented of your sins and asked God to forgive you. Today is the day God wants you to be right with him. With no one looking around, say, Pastor, I want to surrender to Jesus. I want to get right with him. Just slip your hand up. I want to pray for you. Is there anybody that's here like that today? God bless you, sir. That's awesome. Is there anybody else, Pastor, today? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I don't know where I stand with him. If you're at home, 
in obedience to the Lord, you can just put your hands up right there wherever you are, just you and God. You can put your hands down here. I want to lead you in this prayer. And for the benefit of those few that just raised their hand and whoever else is responding, wherever they're singing this on camera, let's all say this prayer out loud today together. Would you repeat this after me? Heavenly Father, today I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me as I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I receive him as my personal savior. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful rest of the day. We will see you next week.